0: Hey guys, welcome to the Think Epic podcast. My name is Jordan Ford. This is episode two, where we sit down with Sim Evan Jones, ACE, who was the editor of Shrek 1 and 2, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, and so much more. And just to give you a little bit of uh, backstory as to how this conversation happened: We were introduced to each other by a family friend who's actually like a steelworks manager. So he's not even close to the industry, but he knew Sim and he knew what I was doing. So he kindly brought us together for an introduction down the local, and we just had a great chat. And he showed us the opening sequence, the storyboarded sequence that they used to get uh, the Chronicles of Narnia greenlit. And he goes into this story in the podcast, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, He was extremely generous with his time. We sat down for an hour and 20 minutes recording the podcast and we were chatting for a long time outside of that (laughs) because there's just so much to talk about, so many great stories, so many great lessons, whatnot. But I'm so happy with what we got in this next hour and 20 minutes for you because we spoke about the fundamental differences in workflow when it comes to live action versus animation, the collaboration between editor and director, the challenges of editing a feature-length stop-motion film, and what it's like to cut a blockbuster live-action like Chronicles of Narnia, and also things about his team, the roles within his team, and how they all work together to deliver a project at this sort of scale. So without further ado, this is Sim Evan Jones, A.C.E., and this is his bio. Sim worked for Steven Spielberg's Amblimation in London during the early 90s, and then as a co-editor on We're Back in Bolto* both distributed by Universal Pictures. In 1995, he moved to Los Angeles as one of the first employees of DreamWorks Animation, working on The Prince of Egypt as an associate editor, and then went on to cut Shrek and Shrek 2 for director Andrew Adamson, as well as helping out on the first Madagascar movie. Sim then began working for Disney, editing the live-action New Zealand-filmed picture The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe and returned to the UK in 2007 to cut The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, again with Andrew Adamson. Sim went on to edit Happy Happy Shake for Beeb and Kidron and Nanny McPhee and the Big Bang for Susanna White, both a working title. He spent some time in New Zealand, again with Andrew Adamson, cutting Cirque du Soleil's World's Away 3D, shot in Las Vegas, and Mr. Pip*, starring Hugh Laurie, shot in Papua New Guinea. Sim was consultant editor on 3DFX movie Pompeii, and the animated movies Free Birds and Book of Life for Dallas Real Effects. In 2014, Sim joined the Ardman Animation team, working closely with directors Mark Burton and Richard Starzak turning much-loved TV character Shaun the Sheep into a global movie star for Shaun the Sheep the movie, released in 2015. Since then, Sim has worked with Nick Park, editing the 2018 release Early Man and the forthcoming follow-up Shaun movie Farmageddon coming October 2019. Tim, Evan James. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good, thank you. Good Very news. nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> right, we've got a lot to get through. Right. So, we're going to start as a bit of an overview as to how you started in this industry in the first place. How did you become the editor you are today? Oh, we never
1: talked about that, did we?
0: We didn't. Um There was uh, no warm-up for this one. No, there
1: was no, no. right. Okay. Well, there's, there's several elements to that. Um... The one I always think of, the two, the two main ones were, I was fourteen. We had a school trip up to London, coming up from the country to watch the cricket. Have never been interested in cricket. Uh, so, in my little school uniform with my kipper tie, I skived off from the oval and got the tube on my own. Never taken the tube on my own. Got the tube on my own into Soho where my sister was working in a film production company as the receptionist and I uh, skived off, went on the tube, went and met my sister who was this film receptionist in Soho on Dean Street, hung out with her for the afternoon and uh, went back to the cricket match and went home. But I had a lovely time in a film production office for the afternoon. So then, um, you know, I, I did my O-levels, my A-levels, went to university, did a little bit of film at university and started to look for a job. And one of the people I went to see was this same production company. My sister had only worked there for a year or something. I went to that same production company and they could remember me as the little, I was 22 or something by then, they could remember me as the little 14-year-old in the Kipper (laughs) tie. (laughs) <laughs> with 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 what they described as a page boy haircut but to me had been the Ramones <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah so they gave me a job as a runner so that was my first job so that's how in the film business I'm known as Sim because of course my name is Simon and all my friends from school and uni call me Simon but every job I cons- you know, got after that first job as a runner came from that job and They knew me as Sim because that's what my sister called me. So I suppose my other defining, (laughs) how did I get a big break in the film business, uh, came from (laughs) i finished uni and I, I applied for the BBC trainee editor scheme, which at the time was six places a year. They would, you know, you went through, I think it was two or three rounds of interviews and they whittled it down from 50 to 10 to 12 to the three people they hired right um and needless to say I did that two years running and didn't get a job (laughs) but I would I was you know I got to the last six or whatever the last thing was but I just didn't make the cut and and I'd heard this story oh there's clicking sounds is that going to pick up can you hear that That'd be right. Yeah, so I'd heard this, you know, the hypocritical thing that if you want to get a job in the film business, and this was the mid '80s, and it was a bad time for film production, uh, if you want to get a job in the film business, you've got to be persistent. So I rang up BBC appointments and explained, you know, post post production hiring, and I explained oh I've done this trainee thing two years in the running, in the two years in a row, and I've not made the grade, and I really want to know. What am I doing wrong? What can I do to improve my game? And they said, "Well, you know, whatever his name is, can see you, the head of the, the department. He can he'll see you. You can come and see him, but you'll have to wait. How long will I have to wait? <sighs> six months. <laughs> so I waited six months. I went to see this bloke, right? He was the head of appointments, <laughs> and he said to me that if there was a queue of twenty people gearing up for this job, I would be at the back of the queue." <laughs> and he told me that um he he uh he told me that uh, yeah i just would never make it on their scheme and i don't i don't really know why but i do remember asking him uh, the one thing i learned from that you have to learn something for every situation one of the questions they'd asked me in the um in the interview was uh you know t- define what editing is and I honestly I had no idea. I just knew I wanted to be an editor. I couldn't, I'd never done it. I couldn't define what the job is or what the, you know, what the processes were even. I cut a bit of 16 mil and I had this idea that you ended up something long and end up something shorter. But he, he, but rather pompously, told me that editing was uh, about the process of distillation. That it's about distilling the best possible version of something from the material gathered. And I thought, yeah, fair play.
0: Do you still think that now? Is that your...
1: I'd still say it's about distillation, yeah, but I can't say that without thinking about this really (laughs) pompous killjoy. I really couldn't crack a smile. Literally couldn't crack a smile. Quite funny. But I do, I do sometimes think, and especially what I'm doing now, down in Bristol doing the stop motion having been on this journey via Universal Pictures and Disney and living in the States and going round and round and round, probably if I'd got that job at the BBC, I might have gone on a journey, but I might still have ended up in a cutting room in Bristol doing exactly the same thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So obviously in that crazy journey, you've experienced two completely different, Types of projects in animation and live action. Can you just explain to us the the, the fundamental differences in workflow when it comes to live action versus animation?
1: Right. I, I suppose I, I would I would edit my answer slightly differently if I was in a job interview for a live action film. <laughs> because what what I do think genuinely is that they both you, your skills as an editor, your craft as an editor, in in, in both. Um, genres, in both formats, you're working towards the same thing, which is to tell the story and using the material given you, get the best possible version of the story on the screen for the viewer. Um, so both jobs you're working towards the same goal. The The tools you have to achieve that goal are very different. In live action, you have your, your finite quantity of dailies. You You're probably working from a pretty much locked script. It might change during the shoot period, but it's pretty much defined when they start shooting. And then you have a finite quantity of dailies from which to you can, you can um, go away from the script, you can change stuff, you can cut scenes, you can do all of that, but you're working with a finite amount of material once you've shot. In animation you actually have to refine the script before you actually shoot anything. So you have hours and hours of storyboard material and script pages that become storyboard material, and that all has to be refined before you can actually shoot any animation. And then once you have the animation, you can then recut that stuff, but you have fewer resources to do so, or fewer, less material. You can, you know... Um, very creative days actually go off and shoot more stuff on the last day of production (laughs) when you you know so you can create new stuff at any given moment but really you have viewers to less stuff to draw from once you've shot but you have an infinite ability almost almost infinite ability to change stuff before you start shooting so in um in animation very often you'll have a writer that comes into the cutting room and looks at storyboards and you're still refining the script right up until the moment the animator starts animating. Um, something else that we do in animation is we will do a we do a an animatic story we'll reel of the whole film, and usually we'll do it first with a bunch of scratch voices. So before we've even recorded an actual actor, very often before we've even cast. We'll have um, a bunch of talented amateurs, editors, producers, storyboard artists. So record all the dialogue in the film and we'll kind of throw that together with music and sound effects so we can get a chance to look at the film before we actually shoot it.
0: And following on from that point there about the script being quite locked in, when you've got heavyweights like Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy, who I can imagine would do a lot of improv, Yeah. How do you work to that? What's the give and take? Because you've done all this scratch audio with the team, and you've blocked out the entire script, and then you you cut to that. Yeah, yeah. And then they go in the in the booth and yeah, they yeah. record all sorts of throw it all goods, up in the air. Throw it all up in the air, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: basically, yeah. Well, it's a, it's an interesting balance because basically. On those movies, on the Shrek movies, the storyboard artists were often writing their own dialogue and were all really funny guys in their own right. So there was a a guy who would specialise in scenes with Donkey uh, and he didn't look anything like Eddie Murphy or sound like Eddie Murphy, but um, he could write funny shtick for Eddie Murphy to, to, you know, improvise on top of. And so he'd be great at those little moments, those little character moments where... You know, between Don Trek he would be able to storyboard and write those little scenes, and then the the storyboard scripting process would let us know if those scenes were going to play in the whole, and then we would take those that kind of rough script to Eddie and say, "This is the script we've got. Feel free to make it better at any moment." And Eddie was incredible at doing that. Like he could, I mean, he could make the dialogue his own almost instantly. So he would sort of arrive and he'd be Mr. Eddie Murphy, but quite shy, quite sort of, you know, um, softly spoken guy. He'd get into the booth, pick up the script, you'd see him read it through, you'd kind of whisper it through to himself, clear his throat, and he'd just become that character. And he'd do four or five read throughs in which there'd be a different improv in every version and you know good job he was in the recording booth separate from all of us in the control room because we'd just be flat on the floor just in hysterics and then he'd say something really modest like is that okay <laughs> and we'd go yeah that's that's yeah that's that's okay Eddie yeah that's good <laughs> that's gold yeah. yeah so he was he was incredible at doing that
0: um yep and what about Mike similar story
1: similar story <laughs>
0: Just get in there and go for it.
1: Yeah, he would get in there and go for it. He would... Mike had a lot of stuff going on that we would have to really talk through the story arc a lot with him and explain the kind of the character arc. I mean, Eddie, I think, just got the character that sort of crazy donkey. Uh, I think Mike very often, because he was not the straight man, but because he had to carry that emotional content, we would have to have, you know... Conversations that explain the arc of the story and where we felt it was going at that time and, you know, the relationships of how Shrek saw the world. So we would have to have quite a lot of, um, you know, story-stroke philosophical conversations about the character and then he would work the material just very methodically through and through. I mean, I suppose the most interesting thing about Mike was that he, he did a whole pass of um, Shrek... In his native Canadian accent, and then we screened the movie for Spielberg and Spielberg said, "I love it, love it, love it, love it, I think it's great. Don't love Mike's voice. Come not, not not that he didn't like Mike's voice, don't like Mike's accent. could he could he you know bring something extra to the character that ogreness, uh, I don't know. How about, couldn't he be like a cockney wrestler? <laughs> so so Spielberg's statement was, could he be a cockney wrestler? <laughs> and so we put that to Mike and Mike uh, had, I think he's got, uh, I know his parents are from Liverpool, but I think he had a Scottish uncle or something. And so he, there was definitely yeah. some 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 guy with a Scotch accent that he channeled and sort of brought to the part. And then we re-recorded everything. With the Scottish accent,
0: I think that just reminded me of an interview that he gave where he said the the thing about the Scottish the Scottish accent is you can say something nice, but it can still sound harsh. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) which is perfect for an ogre because he's always meant to sound yeah, slightly bitter or you know yeah, yeah. it's all everything. Even when it's even when things are good, yeah, yeah, it's just something that's quite harsh. Yeah, he always did fit it perfectly. Yeah,
1: everything is bent. He's bent out of shape by everything. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. And but those sort of conversations explaining that character and how we could... Because I think there was a lot of fear that if a character is just mean and shouty the whole time, that won't be appealing, especially appealing to kids. But I think that was one of the sort of very special things that, um, you know, the directors and producers had in their head was this idea that a character can... Be, if a character's mean and shouty because he's vulnerable inside, then that's something that's that well, that's something you're going to watch more than one movie of because it's really interesting. That's you why know?
0: the character was so good, because the only reason he's like that because he expects people to be like that. Yeah, because right. the, the right. world
1: has bent him into that shape.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's
1: that brilliant, you know, that brilliant like, well, you know, if that's how you're going to treat me, this is how I'm going to treat you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how you know that's never going to go well, but it's really funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So talking about the process of you, 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 you essentially lock picture. Or very closely, um, and then you will start shooting the animation. Yeah, but you've, already, I, I, you've already done that. But then in, in, a, in a live action, did you transfer a lot of the stuff that you would learned from Shrek because you was working with the same director yeah. over to the process in Narnia?
1: Yeah. So so we were very. I was very fortunate to be brought onto the Narnia films by the director who I'd worked with on Shrek. Um, he kind of leveraged his success that he would had with Shrek one and two to get the Narnia gig. Um, That film, they'd obviously, you know, Disney had acquired the rights. They were working with the, you know, C.S. Lewis estate and everyone was very excited about making this film, but there was a little bit of nervousness about, you know, how you take... Because this is before the Harry Potters. Uh, you, you know, this is going way back. How do you take a piece of classic kids, what we would now call IP, and translate that to the big screen? You know, what's that process? How does this animation director win the trust of the studio sufficiently that they're going to give him $150 million and, you know, a nine-month shoot in New Zealand? So so what, what we did was we were just finishing shrek 2 and we we were, <laughs> we put ourselves on a four-day week on shrek 2 and got an office 500 yards away from dreamworks in burbank and we set up the you know line which in the wardrobe cutting room <laughs> and we um we we set out to storyboard the whole movie as an animatic in the same way that we would storyboard a live action uh, a th- in the same way that we would storyboard an animated movie so we we set off our doing all of that at the same time we we got a really talented um previs artist we know to come in and work with us on an opening sequence and and we basically prevised and storyboarded an opening sequence that was Different from in the books, that would set up the film and would be our proof of concept for this is the way we want to go. So, so Andrew devised the the book starts with a very simplistic sentence like it was wartime and the kids went away to their uncle's home in the country to be safe. It was very simple. It doesn't really talk about much detail about what's going on, but Andrew sort of wrote a scene that had, um, you know, started with bombers. German bombers flying over London. They start to drop their bombs. The bombs fall down on a family home. We see the family who are the Pevensies, you know, running for safety. Um, There's a sort of little moment where we meet the kids and the mum. We realise dad's away uh, and uh, they escape the bombing and are evacuated. The children, mum says, Goodbye to the next morning at the train station because they have to leave the leave the city and they go on this beautiful steam train journey um, to the country and that was a a thing that we, we we boarded we did a really beautiful animatic of that and presented this the, the, to Disney and say look this this is how your movie is going to start and they just greenlit it there and then I right. loved it it was it was a really great it was a really 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 sort of brilliant moment because we we were on such a roll of. Sort of momentum of creativity and storyboarding momentum that we were just able to to execute it really well and have enough conviction and box office success under our belt to say we're going to do this. Trust us.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> um, and there's something about that opening scene which I know is quite personal to you. If you can just walk us through that story because that's it, also very cool. Yeah.
1: This is my my little uh, <laughs> my little moment of uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's hard to to well. So the, the nub of that scene is that um, the, we open on, a, on clouds and bombers, and the bombs fall and we find this family who are inside being, you know, grabbing their things and running out to hide in the, I think it's called an Anderson shelter, the bomb shelter in the, at the end of their garden. And um, the way Andrew scripted it was that, was that um, the father is away at war. But they have uh, one of the kids shouts, "Dad, my dad!" and he runs back into the house. And you think he's gone back to get his dad, but in fact, his dad's away at war, and he's gone back in to get the photograph of his dad. So he, the, the youngest boy, Edmund, grabs the photograph, and just at that moment, the window blows in, and um, you know there's been a sort of near miss for the bomb. But he is saved by his brother pulling him out of the way of the explosion, and his brother drags him into the Shelter and says you know don't mess around this is this is life and death you can't mess around and the boy the little scene ends and the boy's clutching the picture of his dad and um so <laughs> all through the storyboarding process we had this image of the, the the dad's photograph and um near the end of the storyboarding process I uh <laughs> this is quite personal I substituted a picture of my dad in uniform in the storyboard thing, and Andrew said, oh, "That's cute. What's that?" And I said, um, "That's a picture of my father. That um, I, I I grew up. My father died when I was quite young, and um, <laughs> and I hadn't grown up with any photographs of him, and um, uh, my sister had unearthed this." photograph of my dad and had sent it to me and so I'd included it in the show and what well, I thought was sort of, I thought it was quite funny to put it in not funny but it was just just thought, interesting thing to chuck it in so I chucked it into the storyboard and um, then when we came to actually shoot it <laughs> the I saw the prop in the dailies and it actually was the photograph of my dad that my sister had found and and Andrew had got hold of this photograph and had it printed out and put in a period frame. And Because my dad was an RAF pilot in the first, in the Second World War, I should say that. So it was completely authentic. It was of the period. And uh, yeah, so the photograph you see in the movie is actually my father, which is just brilliant.
0: And, <laughs> and, and, you, and you didn't see that until the dailies? No. no. What was that like? Mad. Absolutely mad.
1: And then, then Andrew told me a story because uh, Andrew's a brilliant director and he's very good with actors and he completely understands the way to work with actors which is you know not to tell them to do it quicker and louder or or tell them when to pause or tell them how to stand but to give them motivation and explain what the character might be feeling and the backstory that's brought the character to that point and he said he was struggling with getting um, getting the kids to emote and getting Edmund to the little lad who has to run in to get the photograph and then clutch it at the end he was struggling to explain to him what he wanted and and he said he told <laughs> he told this little lad skander he told him the story he said imagine you never knew your dad and imagine you'd never seen a photograph of your dad until an hour ago and then that photograph's about to be blown up <laughs> in the burning house what would you do i'd wow. I, I run in and get the photograph of my dad
0: <laughs> pretty quick yeah
1: <laughs> So yeah, that was uh, that was amazing. Yeah, amazing. Wow. Yeah, but I think you know that's a brilliant illustration of how you know great artists work. They take stuff from around them and they incorporate that into their art. Fortunately for me, it was a picture of my dad. But yeah. in case in the case of Andrew, he'd seen this this resonance for me and you know this genuine like emotional thing. And that I don't know if he'd planned to do it, but that was just one of the things he drew on to get the performance out of the kids.
0: What a story. Yeah, it's a great story. Thank you. Story. That's so good. Well, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Um, now, both both animation and live action, or, they're, they're going to have their stresses. Yeah. What for you, with a, as an editor and as a team, what for you are the most stressful parts of a production <laughs> for both sides? Uh, I-
1: I'm trying to think. I used to have this off. I used to think with live action, the was like the best day and the worst day were the day before you start shooting, <laughs> just because it's so stressful. <laughs> like the thought that this onslaught is about to begin, and it's unknown. You know, you you. I mean, obviously, you've read a script and you know what where it's going to be shot, and you've seen these people, but but until the material starts to come in. You can't do anything about any of that. You know, it's just out there, and you have to wait. It starts coming in. You have to see. You have to, and you know you're going to have to duck and dive with whatever happens, whatever how the weather affects your stuff, or or surprises within the performance, or logistical hiccups, or you know, I don't know, crew tantrums or whatever. All of this stuff is going to land in your lap, and and you may be able to you know, ask for an extra close-up or say you've not got not enough wide shots but at some point all that material is going to roll down into your lap and it's going to be your responsibility to not make excuses but make the best job of it. So, yeah, so i always thought that day before you start shooting was pretty terrifying. Um, having said that, the day you stop shooting is pretty terrifying too because at that point you've got, you know... You've got your material and and you have to cut you have to make your suits of clothes from that material i mean of course it's i've been fortunate in the in the um you know in the digital hybrid c g world we were able to you know insert lines of dialogue from c g characters that could kind of you know change a scene and help change stuff for our, for our purposes but you know that that feeling that there's no more shooting have we got everything is a pretty it's a pretty worrying feeling. You know, I mean I know there's also you have to kick yourself and you have to have that that thrill and excitement of this is it, great, that's it. Thank God they're not shooting anymore. Now we can get on and make something. Yeah. So so they're all they're all kind of bittersweet, those those stressful things. I think um, you know, the, the stresses in the stresses in our animation are more attritional that the process is so drawn out and it's so up in the air for so long that the stress is more about the kind of you constantly having to spin all these multiple plates and that same sense of, for me, the same sense of responsibility. Like, I can't let it be anything in my world that's holding it back from being as good as it can possibly be. Like, it can't not be brilliant because I haven't cut the storyboards together or I haven't found the right temp music or... We haven't got the right sound effect or um it's a I, I can't let, you know, the fact that it's all playing a bit slow be the problem. I have to make sure that it's all firing on all cylinders as much as it can all the time, so that we can keep moving it forward and keep, you know, taking in people's notes and taking direction and improving performance, improving animation. So the stress is kind of the the there isn't an animation a sort of animation and then a post period. It's all, it's all shoot and all post all the way through.
0: And what about the sheer volume of material that gets dumped into your lap? You're yeah. saying it all falls to you, but obviously yeah. you're coming from a you're coming from I suppose almost in comparison, it's quite clinical working in animation because you can be so precise before yeah. beforehand, and then all of a sudden you're filming with multiple units, multiple cameras, yeah. multiple takes. And then all that gets lumped on your lap.
1: Yeah, I suppose. In, I suppose the the narnias were were even at the time pretty incredible for the quantity of dailies that we were shooting, because we were shooting multiple units with multiple cameras. So we would have we'd have a, a main unit shooting A, B, and C cameras, uh, and we were luckier because there were slightly shorter days because of the kids. But as soon as the kids went home, we'd do you know turn the set around and do the adults or whatever. So that, so they would be a lot of dailies. Plus we would have, um, we had multiple second units. So we'd have like an action second unit and we'd have a miniature second unit. We'd have an aerial second unit. At one point we had uh, a unit, a main unit in the Czech Republic, uh, a second unit in the Czech Republic shooting, you know, horses and battle stuff. Uh, we had... Uh, We had aerials going on in Poland and we had a miniature shoot in Weta uh, in Wellington. But we also had some aerials coming in from somewhere on the South Island, somewhere that we, we couldn't quite, Andrew couldn't quite find the right aerial of these horses sort of going across a river just upstream of the stuff we'd shot in Slovakia. But it just happened to match in New Zealand, <laughs> so we just had all these multiple sources of material, plus what we were trying to do was watch or I was trying to watch all dailies as opposed to sort of looking for what I needed and cherry picking and going into the real into the roles for that. I was very much trying to watch everything in case there were sort of surprises and stuff um yeah,
0: and then in animation so even in- even though you've done all that groundwork so that you can feel confident as to you can pretty much see to a comfortable degree of what, yeah, of what so, you're aiming for throughout the whole film. Yeah.
1: So in animation, we would storyboard multiple versions of things, and we would try and have a whole animatic of the movie before we started shooting. But sadly, that's a bit of a dream. You you the you you will have a sort of an animatic of the whole movie of a, a version of everything, hopefully, and then you start shooting. But probably seventy percent of that will be versions that you're not happy with. So you might have you might have thirty percent of your reel is ready to start shooting and then you have to, to sort of ahead of the next thing going into production you have to refine that scene and then refine that scene and sometimes you end up refining half a scene and putting that in but the first half of the scene you're still not happy with so you can't put that in so you end up with this sort of checkerboard of stuff shot and stuff that's still on the bench with the elves being refined and stuff that's finished and then the stuff that comes in especially in stop motion you're fine cutting that stuff all the time and you're turning it over to VFX and um, to finish off because there's a lot of kind of layering of elements and virtual elements and set extensions and skies and backgrounds
0: that go in and the director is having the final say on that so you, you'll get something come back and it'll be it goes off to be tweaked again
1: yeah so so a large part i'm talking we spoke um we have quite a big crew in um an animation cutting room, a lot of what they're doing is they're temping in elements before they go to the VFX houses so we can see a version of the shot that has the right sky and has sort of, you know, the maybe a smoke layer but has the different animation passes comped together so that before we get the proper VFX work done, we have a low-res version that we can pop into the scene, show the director and run in screenings because everything in... Everything in uh the animation process is about watching for editorial is about watching stuff in context. You know, like you will you will rough out scene. Hopefully the 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 best way I find to do it is to rough out the scenes and once you know you've got the right scenes, start refining them. But part of that is making sure that material that's been shot is represented in the cut in some way, because it can be it's it can be you know, if there's elements that have been shot that aren't comped in it can be really distracting because you're, you're not watching the whole thing. You know, if there's a a crowd layer missing, then you don't know you're in a crowd scene. But you know, if you don't have those temps, then it's a complete surprise that there's you're watching a crowd scene because they've never been represented in some way.
0: Yeah, and then when you're when you're sat down with the director and you're reviewing this stuff, and you've got everything that you're you're both happy with, one he's happy with you know, what's what's coming across on the screen and you're happy to start piecing it all together. What's the collaboration like between editor and director?
1: Uh I think it's the same in both worlds, really. I think you're, as an editor, you're trying to present the best version of the material you've had. You know, I think every director will have a list of things. Mm, that's not what I meant. Mm, can we change that? I'd like to look at that and have these detailed things. But hopefully you both come to you know because directors will have a whole list of things they know from the shoot that they were going for and you may have anticipated those i mean i know there's definitely directors i'm working with at the moment and we have a really good rapport and they'll say oh you spotted that and oh yeah that's what i meant you know and you kind of read their shorthand in the elements that you get and the way stuff is presented and you kind of so hopefully you're anticipating some of that there will inevitably be stuff within the shots within the scenes that they want to experiment with. But hopefully as an editor, you're making a presentation where a lot of that detail is tempting in some way so that you can talk about, you know, the the broader strokes. You know, is this one question we can ask, is it too long? Is it too quick? You know? Uh in animation you can really you can struggle with assumptions as well, like you can assume, are these characters happy here or are they sad? Oh, they're sad, but that's funny that they're sad. Well, that's funny because, you know, you, you sometimes you have to actually have quite, uh, you know, obvious sounding conversations because you're you're looking at a temp of something or something that's not finished. You will need to know you're both on the same page about that. I suppose, the you know, so there's, and then there's, Especially a company like Arben There's two strands to your animation editing There's your making sure that the characters track And that there's an engaging story With, you know, hopefully enough surprises and twists and what have you But there's also the basic nuts and bolts of making it funny <laughs> In fact, that is really the thing that That I make, you know, that keeps me ticking It's <laughs> just that constant It's always, it's like, it's constant It's that desires and that that urge to work away at the gags, and make, sometimes that's about leaving them alone and allowing that kind of crazy spontaneous moment that someone had a year previously to to breathe and 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 stay unmolested. But other times it's about really chipping away and saying, you know, if we edge that thing a little tighter, or or just suspend that moment there, do we collectively all smile a bit? And can we get that? Can we go from smiling to laughing? Well, actually, how journey out it goes is, can we take that smile and turn it into a nasal? You know that kind of nasal laugh. It, after you've been working on for two years, the nasal laugh—that's like a guffaw. Oh. <laughs> but then you work away, and you can we can we get that nasal laugh into three or four people going? Huh? <laughs> and then. We're us hard bitten cynical people that worked on this stuff for two years. You play that to an audience, they'd be falling off the chairs because they'd never seen it before. And if you, it's very gratifying to take that stuff and show it to people who haven't seen it before and think, oh yeah, we really have refined that because there's no. I mean, um, uh, you know, if there's ever a documentary about um comedians, you know, like these biopics of, uh, Morecambe and Wise or, you know, that's a, that's a really good example or, you know. You'll see how methodical Benny Hill's another one. How methodical they are about gags, and how obsessive they are about writing down. They have you know notebooks full of funny stuff they've seen in the street. They save it all up, and then they're you know. Um, Rowan Atkinson is incredible. That, and I know, you know, not through personal experience, but I know he's the sort of guy that goes into cutting room and will work with the editor for hours on a gag. You know, can we try it this way? That's not how I thought. Can we've got because the you know, remember that take where this happened? Can we use that take? Yeah, can we use that bit of that take? And they will they will structure and they will keep chipping away until it's funny. Until and they have that. Of course, they have that great sense that that through all that that craft they could chip away and it will be the thing that defines their sense of humor. And you'll go, oh yeah, it was always like that, wasn't it? It was always like that. was always that funny. That Mr. Beanie was always that funny. (laughs) But that is the, you know, that's the process of hours and hours and years and years of experience, but then and of making people laugh. But then that is, we could use the distilling word here, distilled into these tricks that they have that very often are cutting room things to make it work. I know Mike Myers would spend hours in the cutting room, you know. I bet Buster Keaton spent hours in the cutting room. I know they didn't cut as often then, but... I bet, he, because he was into every element of that craft, you know.
0: And what about when there's a disagreement in the costume room? So maybe your director is adamant he wants it one way, but you are adamant also that it works best the other way. Um, and it doesn't even have to, not, not even in comedy. It could be in right. a dramatic scene or something like that. I know this is a little bit like how long is a piece of string because mm-hmm. every director is different, mm-hmm. but is there any... Do you have any uh, trigger in your mind of when to stop and when to push? And
1: yeah, I suppose, I suppose um, that never ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, computer! The- yeah, that was the first God. <laughs> never ever happens. <laughs> um, no, of course it happens, and of course you have you have these things, and you sit there going, "It's not going to work, it's not going to work, it's not going to work." But you think, you're saying stuff, it's not going to work, but then. Very often, directors are very insightful people. You'll you have to go down the road with them, and you'll go. Yeah, I get it now. I completely get what you're after, Mister or Missus Director. I'm on board with that, and I'm going to make that the best version of that that you want. And once you understand, once they can express to you and you can understand it, you can embrace it. Then there'll be the things where you you if there is a th- thing that you come across. This is you know my way of dealing with it. Where I don't agree. Um. I think it's the responsibility is mine to, to, to come up with a version that persuades them another another way, you know. So so if they have a particular choice they want to make and I don't agree with it, generally I will try and, you know, this is where the hours come in. I will I wait till everyone's gone and I'll do it a different way. And I'll see if I can understand what they're on about, you know if I can incorporate that in a version that I'm happy with or I can come up with a with a version of what I was trying to achieve or, I better still, find a completely third way that isn't either of those two problems and and is better still, you know. So I think, you know, as you, you, you grow and you get into the stuff and you think about it more and more, I, my current thing in my head is always this idea of I have to take responsibility even if I don't agree with something I have to take responsibility for making it work that I can't I can't allow myself to say well they wanted it that way I never agreed with it but that's the way it is because if I don't agree with it I have to I still have to make it work
0: hmm. you know and, and there's your name on it
1: and there's my name on it yeah and there's they, their name on it and 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 I, genuinely genuinely I will come up with different versions and we will find a version that we're both happy with. Or, or I will just, just you know... Come back to it in six months and change it. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you, yeah, you obviously yeah. you can't eat, let the stuff eat you up, you know. Yeah. And the thing, I guess, the other thing as well is that you might have some weird disagreement about some tiny detail, but you just suck it up. And in six, in, in a few weeks' time, you'll forget that tiny detail because the whole scene will be cut out, or um, or that tiny detail will just seem irrelevant compared with all this other great stuff that you've agreed upon.
0: So you obviously work closest with the director but on bigger productions, you're going to have multiple producers and all of their opinions carry the same weight. How do you manage producer opinion?
1: Right. It's very interesting. I suppose, you know, ideally, we're all talking about the same thing. And, and depending on how these things work, you'll have a producer that you work with on a daily basis much as you work with a director and they... Sometimes they're more like a line producer that they're just sort of facilitating. But um, in animation, you have quite often have creative producers who are, you know, very involved in the nitty gritty of knocking the story out. You know, they'll be around to ensure that you're moving forward. They'll be the ones who say, you know what, let's get the writer in next week just to give us a dialogue polish on this stuff. Let's just check that this is working with how they were seeing stuff or they'll say, you know what, Mr. Director, I think you need to go back into that scene. And I think, it, you know, you need to really look at the comedy, you know, and so, so you'll have a relationship with them and you'll see them. Sometimes you'll only ever see them with the director. Sometimes you'll, you know, show them stuff when the director's busy and you'll have conversations. So it's about folding their views in and, and you can also go to them and you can say, look, we are struggling. We will never, you know, we need another four weeks on this two-minute section. Can we? You know, we can't put that into production yet. We're just not ready. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and you can sort of help shape those resources and hopefully have good relationships with them as you as you progress. You'll you know you'll start screening your sequences and your acts and your film to the a wider audience, and very often the people who. You know, are the most critical are the producers, and you'll have half a dozen different producers, maybe from the the studio, or maybe from, you know, it depends on how the the show is set up. But you might have internal producers who are like the sort of, you know, next level of approval, or you might, uh, if, you know, if you're an independent production company, there will be studio producers who are outside of that, and they're the ones who're giving you the millions of dollars so obviously it's going to be interesting what they have to say Um, so I mean really the producers are your audience they're an informed audience and you have to you know as editors and directors we listen to everything they say and we we see how it resonates with what we think we're trying to achieve Um, I mean the best thing with producers I mean I don't think it's controversial to say it is to is generally when it, especially when you get out to that broader you know when you're broadcasting to to a crew of producers it's to sort of listen to the what they bring up as the problems but not necessarily always you don't have to embrace their solutions you know I think I think they're a really good bellwether for how you're doing if you can make them laugh that's pretty good because <laughs> they're generally a pretty straight faced bunch but but um yeah I mean they're 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 your next step on getting in front of a real audience. So, so and they're they're informed and hopefully they've done it before. Or if they haven't done it before, they're there for their super duper insight. Um, so it's really valuable that you can, you know, take constructive stuff from their criticism because it's because especially if you come to it fresh, it's going to feel really tough and really harsh. That suddenly you've worked on this thing for months, uh, weeks, and months and hours and. However long you've worked on it and you've you've kind of done the best you can with it and then you're gonna show it to them and and there's at that point they're not gonna hear any of your disclaimers. <laughs> they won't hear those. You can you should say them because it makes you feel better. Like, yeah, you know, we've we've tried really hard with that one, but we still feel that we, you know, need to just change the opening ten minutes and act two is coming on quite nicely but and act three is really a placeholder. The first thing they're gonna tell you is that Act three sucks. (laughs) But it's a placeholder, yeah, but it sucks. And the first ten minutes is terrible. Yeah, but we said that. (laughs) You know, so that but they will be telling you what you have told them and they will be right. And and, you know, they may have insight on how to fix it, but they'll also say, you know, that Act Two is it's it just feels long (laughs) yeah yeah might be ticking all the boxes of what you need to get to your right through but or it's too rushed or whatever you know but then you'll be like oh we we didn't think of that because we were looking at this other thing so they're always going to have really brilliant insight they'll probably have also had their ideas depending on how they've come to the project about what their expectations are and they will have bigger picture ideas about where it fits into you know other things like their release schedule or the demographic and all those things i mean that's probably a little bit technical that hopefully they're more emotional than that but uh yeah really everyone's opinion is valid um and and it's just it's very valuable to get those opinions and the great thing about producer screenings is they're all informed people so they know uh, they have a common language to express what they
0: think about your work and is there a lot of client expectation there? Because what if what if you you do so much work getting it to a very close stage to being sort of a, a lock in the edit, and then they ask for a big change? It, can you say with, with like with the schedule?
1: Yeah, I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? Because like if they have a big change that has a big shed, shed, schedule implication, then it's then it's. There's another producer within the producer ecosystem who'll turn around and say, you know, you can't get your film released if you make that change. Or, yes, but it's going to make it tight. There's a kind of a... Producer, there's a hierarchy of producers and how they negotiate those things. Someone will come to you and say, do you think we can do it? What do you need to achieve it? And you might say, uh, I can't do it on my own, but if you give me an extra person, we can do it. Or, right. or you might say, you know, you can... You're never going to say we can't do it. Well, you might say we can't do it in the time. You're probably not going to say I I don't know. It's just that there are there are just many different scenarios. But the but you know film productions are set up with these uh, to borrow a phrase from American legislature checks and balances. You know that there's there are people whose producerial skills are making it happen, and there are people whose producerial skills are what needs, saying what needs to happen, you know, and between them they can negotiate a path, you know. And and so I suppose what's interesting is that in that for me, I have very valuable relationships with directors, but I also have a number of producers that i've really enjoyed working with because they can save me a lot of pain
0: (laughs) is that is that because they know the implications of what that means if you're going to ask a big change so later on they know that what that means in terms of reaching a timeline visual effects sound
1: it's that whole trust thing i i i know that they know how how it'll um I don't know sometimes I suffer from a bad back and I feel like the, I don't edit the films I have them extracted from my spine <laughs> and there are certain producers I feel safe around because they understand what goes into what I'm doing you know they understand and they're not going to send me off a they're, they're going to do I can trust their judgement you know and I can go to them with my problems and they can I can feel heard you know Um and, and there are other people I don't know as well or, you know, I don't feel that's at ease with that and that, that you know, they're all, they're all, you
0: know, worthwhile relationships. And even with those teams around you on projects that size, can you just talk about the pressure that comes with that?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, we talked a little bit about the Narnia and the pressure involved there that, you know, just the crushing pressure of watching dailies and then the crushing pressure of you know getting a cut and then the crushing pressure of with that there was this mad thing well it doesn't seem mad now but at the time it seemed so mad that we'd have to be locking the cut before we'd even finished fine you know refining stuff because we'd have to send it off to visual effects, and if we didn't have half the movie in visual effects halfway through the shoot, we'd never finish the film. It wouldn't be done in time. So you'd be sending scenes that you'd never, you hadn't really had a chance to to experiment with to visual effects, so that they, at least they could start putting the visual effects in, and then they'd have to do multiple, multiple revisions of the cut, and reincorporate their visual effects into all those revisions. But if they hadn't, if we hadn't done that. You know the the centaurs wouldn't have had furry legs because there wouldn't have been the time to do it. You know to, to to work with the plates and refine the, you know the motion capture and and create all the the legs, um all, you know all the wide shots to populate the wide shots. You know we'd put a wide shot in at four. You know what would we do? We'd put twenty seconds in, and they'd start animating it. We'd use four. You know, but you but you couldn't anticipate that until you let the whole kind of cut, breathe and expand and shrink and breathe and ex- you know, so there's quite a lot of pressure going on there, to cut the dailies as they're being shot, to turn stuff over to visual effects and to refine refine the whole cut with a studio breathing down your neck you've just given you 200 million dollars <laughs> It's 200 million dollars. How's our film? How's our film coming along?
0: <laughs> great, that's
1: yeah. great, actually. Yeah, we were hoping to show you uh in two years' time. No, okay, we'll show you in three weeks. Yeah, okay, we'll show you tomorrow. <laughs> and then, because of course, then you, the, you have to be really careful with those hybrid and visual effects movies because you can, if you show them something with this, is getting come back to the whole thing of putting temps in if you show something you might show something and there might be a slightly uninformed viewer who can't imagine what it's going to look like you know so Mm -hmm. you so you constantly have to temp in elements so that you can and all your wonderful temp music and temp sound effects temp visual effects skills come into play so that they have a chance to not be thinking about what it will look like but you have to convince them that they're watching something that's close to the finish thing
0: and more about dealing with the pressure of something that is so famous as a a book like yeah in the, the wardrobe where there's going to be big moments in it like when yeah. Lucy walks through the wardrobe that's always a scene that you know we've got that's that's got to be nailed because yeah. that's one of the biggest moments in the film it's the moment that everyone's waiting for yeah and
1: um, i mean i suppose i suppose that's that's a really great Example of of um, you know a director with a vision really because we always knew that was going to be the big the big moment to deliver and I think um, there were multiple things that we did to try and help deliver that um, one of them was to dig a thirty foot hole in an equestrian center in South Auckland <laughs> which was <is> the set <laughs> we were looking we were struggling to find a soundstage anywhere in New Zealand to to build the snowscape we considered we sh- we shot some of the exteriors in the czech republic but that was always you know the, we just couldn't pull it off that whole moment in a real forest her points of viewer actually i think her pov's are from the czech republic but most of it was done on sound soundstage in new zealand but there wasn't a soundstage big enough so we we bought out I think it was probably end up being about six months of this massive in, indoor equestrian centre in Auckland. Uh, and it wasn't tall enough for all the lighting. So rather than raise the roof, we dug a massive hole <laughs> and filled it full of some pretty awful, conciferous nasty, you know, paper dust or something that everyone apart from the cast had face masks and eye protectors on. <laughs> But um, no, I mean, so yeah, so talking about the director's vision and the director's long view, I think, think, you know, they watched 3,000 kids on casting tapes and Georgie, who played that part, just leapt out. I mean, I think I watched probably a couple of hundred and she just leapt out as being this incredible kind of precocious spirit. She had come to acting, she'd wanted to act... But there wasn't she i don't think there was a theater group where she lived, so she started a theater group at her school <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and then and then somehow a casting director happened to you know visit her school and of course met her and put her on the list and you know so I think when Andrew met her, he saw something and I think he saw that moment you know hmm. that moment and we literally built this incredible set and um i think she'd i think she'd met. Um, James McAvoy I think they'd met like a read through or something but she hadn't seen him in costume with the scarf and the and furry legs which of course were green trousers but um, so she hadn't met him before and she hadn't seen the set and we I think we did the, there was a set for the wardrobe side which she'd done that whole thing and we, there was like a sort of corridor full of coach. So she she'd done that thing but then we re, we recreated that so that the very first... How did we do it? I know. We led her through the coats with the blindfold on and she'd never seen the set and we got her to the point of walking out of the wardrobe blindfolded so she'd not seen any of it. And, and it was like full snow machine, full lighting, full everything and they took the blindfold off. And so that her response is a genuine response. That is the very first time she saw Narnia. Oh, really? And if you look at the takes... <laughs> uh and it drove Andrew mad. Her hair's out of place. It's like completely wiggy on one side because that's where that blindfold had caught it behind her ear. Right. And he's like, we can't <laughs> use it. Look at her hair. I'm like, well, look at her face. Of course we can use it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's that's, just... Yeah. It's such a good moment when she, when she's walking back, feeling the coats and then yeah. and with the music as well because you have the score yeah, yeah. You have the score slightly building. She's looking over the camera and then when it, when her hand touches the tree yeah. and it stops, Yeah. it's just... That's the moment that everyone's been, been yeah. waiting for as well, yeah. and it's just pulled off so well. But that must have been planned out like that yeah. by Andrew so far in advance. Yeah. So that is how it will play out.
1: So I can tell you some of the stuff that we did to plan that. We storyboarded it all, as I said. But we had a very special piece of music, um, temp music, that we used for, the, for that, which was... It was actually the temp score from Michael Danner's score for uh, The Ice Storm don't know if you've seen that film. It's about sort of teenage angst in the Midwest, but basically these calamities before, you know, this middle-class family. Actually, no, I'm not even sure it's about that, but there's just these frozen landscapes, but with sort of twisted stuff going on, and this beautiful ethereal score. So we actually played that on set as well, over the sound of the... <laughs> the um, machines and (laughs) stuff but it was i mean i I guess the reason i mentioned that is because it all through the production process that was in our heads that sort of it's this hovering fluctuating string sound you're not quite sure what the instruments are but it's this constant beautiful ethereal sense of anticipation and it just plays out beautifully and and i remember having to then take that piece of music hide it somewhere and tell Harry the composer what we wanted (laughs) but but basically by describing this other piece of music but he did he did a fantastic job there so that was great and then the other funny temp music story that goes with that is when the kids ensemble come through the wardrobe that in the temp score was always um all all is love by Bjork all is all is full of love do you know that song it's the a really head. beautiful kind of song about beauty and magic and love with little Bjork's little voice. And, and we so wanted her to, to do a song for the film, but I think we were just too big an American for her. <laughs> but it would have been lovely. But anyway, so we had that all the way through the temp. So very often I'll spend long, in fact, all the time I spend longer with the temp in my head than with the final score because the final score arrives in the last few months of a production and i have I've had two years of listening to my temp music yeah. so yeah so so the emotional I the way I plot the scenes emotionally is often through the the temp music so
0: and we've reached that moment in film across all the films that you've done is there any one film where you were sat in the cutting room and you watched it and you thought that's it does that happen quite a lot or is it quite rare for you to see that moment and go, that's the one?
1: Well, I did really love that that material. When we saw the dailies of her coming in, I did really think he'd cracked it. Hmm. He'd nailed it. There was a moment in Shrek, weirdly, that every time I watched it, I loved, which was when he's at the door and Fiona's telling Donkey about how she feels or something and he mishears or he turns away and then... That. I think
0: the line is this is my nerd coming out, but it's how could anyone love such a horrible beast? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, then, and then he's like it, the whole animation of his ears dropping, in, yeah, and yeah. then and he
1: just shrunks, and he just, yeah, just his shoulders go down. He just, yeah, that's brilliant. I'm so glad
0: you can remember that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, that it always gives me because it a, hits though. It that, yeah. that really hits.
1: Yeah, yeah, it always gives me a shiver, even. And I remember because very often we'll talk about oh don't you get bored watching these films and how can you tell every time I watch that I would get that moment I think yeah yeah. well sometimes I'd like genuinely feel other times I think yeah we're good (laughs) this is good we've done a good job (laughs) but uh, you know sadly not all the time is it like that but but yeah there are they are brilliant when those moments happen
0: yeah absolutely and then
1: that's so amazing, brilliant. You can remember. That. I can't remember that. I've I've pushed all those. Sometimes, I've, sometimes right. I think like I've got like like um, you know, when I can't find the car keys, I think it's because I've got all this temp music that I can remember from films I did six years ago. Yeah, stuff like stuff. You're constantly your brain is constantly bombard, bombarded with all these elements that you have to remember because they might come in handy.
0: Yeah,
1: on one particular show, but then they all get shoved out by the next show, and you've got to remember you know, another five hundred thousand feet of dailies or another four and a half hours of storyboard material and then all of that gets shoved down. You have to remember another load. So so I think I probably could sit down and watch Shrek Two like I'd never seen it before. Yeah. <laughs> Actually that isn't true because I'd probably sit there and I'd think, Oh, I preferred the scratch music there or I remember <laughs> oh, we shouldn't have cut that line of dialogue. Or, oh no. yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah. And then what about the challenges of cutting a stop-motion film?
1: Right. Well, I mean, I, I, it was interesting coming into stop-motion. Um, it was really interesting because, because the first one I did was Sean the Sheep, the first Sean the Sheep movie. And they were already quite a long way into production. And it was quite interesting. They just said, it was this sort of conversation over a few months of like, oh, are you what are you doing these days? Well, I'm doing some stuff. Okay. Mm, do you think you could pop down and, you know, work with us for a bit? Well, no, I've got this other job. Oh, okay, okay, all right, well, see you around. And then another conversation. So what are you doing now? Uh, Well, I took that other job because you didn't offer me. So it went on. So it was like a few months of this little dance. And then I went and did a job in Canada, uh, Pompeii, the live action film. And I came back from that and I thought, I need a job right now. So I rang him up and... And said, so do you still need someone? Yeah, can you start tomorrow? (laughs) And basically what had been going on was that they'd been going through this whole story reel thing and they had these two brilliant, very creative editors working on sequences and it was very funny and they were probably 50% in animation. It was great. It was really great. It was really, really funny. But I watched it and for me, I just felt like it was really disconnected. The scenes felt like individual scenes and it just really felt like there was more they could get from their material and I can't, I can't honestly remember what they asked me to do I just remember watching it and telling them what I was going to do and what, what, what I did initially in my thing which really chimed with the writer was um, sorry this is just the specifics of that particular film, I kind of restructured Act 1 and Act 2 so they were more intercut and they were less linear the long and the short of that is, that was my first journey into stop motion, and what I realized was that there were fewer iterations of actual shots. That once a shot was shot, it was much closer to how it would end up being like in live action. You couldn't re-voice things, especially in a film with no dialogue, but you you could re-time stuff, but you, you couldn't you didn't have the flexibility that you have with CG characters. You know, it was much more about Taking a finite number of plates and and combining them and sort of re-cooking them to to make what you wanted. So so it was it was genuinely for me, I felt like a hybrid of my animation experience, having to board everything and plan everything up front, with my live action experience of this is this is now what you've got. Do the best you can with it. And there wasn't an in-between stage that you get in CG of like you know rough animation. There was no rough animation. There was no pre-light stuff that wasn't rendered. It came in looking like a, you know,
0: Shaun the Sheep thing. And and just for people to understand, what's the the ratio of time it takes to animate (laughs) to what you see on screen?
1: I don't know. It's crazy. It's like, um, I don't know, I think they do a second a day in Animator or something. It's something. I mean, I don't mean... I mean, they'll be really cross with me for not knowing, but it, it's but it's a long time. It's a long time. But what's weird about that, and is is that that you'll be sitting in your cutting room, and there'll be there'll be sixteen between sixteen and twenty animators. They'll actually have twenty or more hot sets that people are shooting on. So, and when they wrap a shot, or when they get to a certain point, they'll send it up to editorial and they'll need you to look at it pretty much instantly to say if it's doing what you think it needs to do because they need to move that set on and move that animator on so you can be sitting upstairs editing away and suddenly it's like um it's like a operating theatre suddenly the room is full of people like like grim-faced clenched-teeth production people who need to know if the shot's okay so they can wrap the set or move the animator on so so there's within any given day you'll be interrupted you know, half a dozen times by these shots coming in that, that you know, and there'll be like heated heated conversations, or at least conversations about whether it's doing what was needed from it, and you know, would an extra eight frames help it? Um But yeah, so you, you so you have to wait till six o'clock, and they've all got home gone home before you can do anything, <laughs> before you can get anything done.
0: <laughs> and how does the stress in the, the 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 main challenges of that of bringing all that together and making sure that those you get those moments. I think yeah. you said you had a motto. Every film sort of develops its own motto. Oh. And in stop motion you said it was the big win.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Really, yeah, that that was something. It was uh, the one of the producers started to use that phrase a lot, which was just like what's the big win here? Which was a great way of looking at it. Like you can you know, you've only got so many hours in the day. And generally, what I took that, what I used that for was to to try and stop myself getting stuck into detail, and to think, you know, rather than refining, you know, the this little three or four shots here, am I really missing the point that what I need to do is be is be changing this bigger idea over here? I could make a half decent job of that little stretch, but I but I shouldn't try and. Because that's a tiny detail no one will notice. I should move on and think. What's the big thing that I can do? Can I get a big laugh out of that that scene? Or could it be, you know, could it be a lot better if it was slower? Or a lot better if it was, you, you know, what's the big picture thing there? And I think, I think definitely with animators and people in animation, there is that that sort of thing you have to constantly stop doing which is falling i mean detail is hugely important and anyone who knows anyone who's seen an an Armand film or even shrek that there is no shortage of detail there's rich wonderful detail that makes it wonderful to see it over and over again but if you're trying to arrive at which shots are going to have the detail in sometimes you just have to forget that detail and work on the bigger picture and that's that was the our little motto from that film was like looking at something you know Act three, what's the big win? Well, you know, if we can get the emotional farewell working, then we can come back and do the fight scene. But really, we have to make sure that, you know, the emotional farewell is working before we can judge if it's worth having the fight. That kind of thing. I mean, that's a a generalisation.
0: So is there ever the crushing blow where you have to say, this this shot's been animated but it doesn't serve it, so it has to go.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty miserable. <laughs> but it is true, yeah. And and it's also at that point you think you you think, Oh, could we not have anticipated this? And you know, so you do so you have a you know, you'll get to the end and and you'll realise that the middle of the movie is just not you know, the jokes aren't landing and it's stopping you getting to the next funny bit and yeah, you do sometimes just have to say, let's just look at it without that shot and see if it's better. And then, because they're a a nice bunch of people, they generally go, and before they let everyone know, they go and find the person that spent two and a half weeks and they go, well, I'm very sorry, Um, Jim or Jane. um, (laughs) It's not your shot that's the problem. (laughs) It's Sim. (laughs) He just doesn't want it. No, but I mean, they, they, they try and... You know, there's a lot of work that goes into sort of just prepping people for that. And yeah. and we, you know, we screen the movie regularly for the crew so they can be the judge of whether it's improved by the cuts we're making in editorial. And, and hopefully the storyboard process means that there are not many of those moments, but there will be those moments when you have to turn someone and cut their shot. There was a thing on Shrek because <laughs> my wife, Julia, drew the the opening medieval manuscript on both Shrek's 1 and 2. And there was a moment where we had this doubt that the opening of Shrek 1 was working. And it coincided with me me taking... I think I had to go back to the UK for a week. Julia and I had to leave the studio and go home. And I left my um, colleague, Mike, the the task of trying the film without the manuscript in. (laughs) And so the whole time we were in England, I was like, oh, please... Say to Julia, "How am I going to explain this?" And so I got back, and the first thing I did was go into Matchroom. Did it work? <laughs> did it work? He said, "No, it was crap." Without the book, <laughs> so I was like, "Phew." That would have been a that would have been a tough call to make. I'll get a hotel, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And just to talk about your team, so could you just give us a rundown of your team, the roles within it, right? How they communicate to each other right. and what the what the day looks like for the for your team.
1: Right. So it's pretty structured in animation, and we're also very fortunate that we have a big crew. Um, there are two reasons we have a big crew. One is to facilitate the movement of stuff into my room to be edited. So that's providing me with um, storyboard panels and shots that are prepped in such a way that I can cut them. But also we have to do a lot of work um, to use a geeky expression wrangling metadata because we have to provide a lot of reference materials for the animators. But we also are constantly feeding the cut into some um, you know, Kafkaesque computer system that breaks it up into shots and tells us if we can afford to shoot that many shots that are that long or that short. Because um, we're constantly trying to say, you know we've got enough resource to shoot 84 minutes of animation. If the scenes that we're shooting are so, so long, because they, they tend to grow from storyboard to animation, it tries to an- anticipate if we've got, you know, a 17-minute story reel, will that end up at 84 minutes of animation? Um, so there's a lot of calculation and, and stuff that goes on the whole time to sort of manage those resources. Um and there's lots of people in editorial their job is to facilitate that. So so to name the crew, there's a there's myself. Um I have a brilliant associate editor who um uh you know is a very talented editor in his own right. And he, you know, cuts sequence with the directors, I cut sequence with the directors, but ultimately I'll kind of do the the, the bigger moves, you know, and and take the responsibility for those bigger changes um so there's myself and an associate editor producing sequence cuts if you like then there's the first assistant who runs the rest of the crew and he is tasked with managing the cutting room and how the the materials flowing between being ingested by the assistants and coming to me but he's also very responsible in um post and producing quick times and references for the composer and Um, cut lists for the final grade he's very experienced all of that then we have uh, generally speaking we have a second assistant who's prepping stuff for him and then two thirds who share a lot of that work of feeding the kind of production computer and also they run a screening room we have a a 4K screening room that kind of opens at 8 in the morning and closes about 7.30 at night. And that's constantly running plates for the DP and plates for the um, animators and directors to review before um, I've mangled them in the edit. But also remembering that we also have a very talented VFX editor whose job it is to take all these plates, give me temps for the cut, and turn every turn over everything to the the effects department who are out of house. So in at Aardman, they don't produce any of the final shots themselves. Or they, they will if it's just a camera only thing, but out of maybe fifteen hundred cuts in the film, thirteen hundred and fifty of them are visual effects. Because there's rig removal, there's sky I was going to call them sky replacements, but it's not replacement if it's a green screen. <laughs> that's that's a live action term. Um, so there's rig removal. There's um, uh, some digital set extension. It's most mostly kind of multiple character passes, because rather than there's all sorts of stuff they have to do. If they've got you know multiple characters, they use the same puppet over and over again. So they'll shoot them on separate plates and that'll all get comped together so he'll comp that stuff for me for the cut but then he has to prep all those elements to send to the vendor uh, which is another it's a really demanding job because he's spinning you know 1350 plates and that has its own pressures timeline pressures because you have to start handing that stuff over before you've done a fine cut otherwise you won't get the shots back in time to fine cut them And very often things will be handed over and then they'll get cut. So we put them on pause, but we can't say they've gone until the movie's done. So I'll have a load of stuff on hold. But also um, there's a lot of re-timing within shots that goes on that I'll do and that, you know, the directors are asked for. Um, And, you know, because stop motion, there's no motion blur in stop motion. So any element really, you can cheat the timing of it and it'll look just like the rest of the stop-motion shot. So inevitably, we editors tinker around with a lot of that stuff, and that will happen after we've turned stuff over to VFX, and the VFX editor needs to catch that in time to give us a finished shot for the grade and for the mix.
0: And what's the self-talk throughout all of these productions? Is there one little thing that you say to yourself... Um, is there one rule that you stick by when it is getting stressful is there any sort of thing that you in terms of you, manic- try, to, you try to remember in terms of uh, it's only
1: a cartoon <laughs> 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 well that's that's the mad thing that you have uh, you know you have those situations that they'll say you know there's trouble at mill <laughs> that you, you need to go to the down to the unit you really need to Someone you know we need to sort this out, we need a decision, and you'll go down to to the set, and there'll be eight grown ups adults, all red faced, standing around four eight inch sheep puppets, <laughs> everyone with an opposing opinion about what the sheep puppets need to do, or from what angle you're going to shoot it, or whether or not you even need the shot, <laughs> so yeah, at that point, you just have to remember it's a cartoon. <laughs> Nice, but I mean, I mean, there's stuff, you know. There's stuff you just have to always, you know, think about the story and just, especially at is it funny? You know, are we are we beating ourselves up over something that's going to make it clearer and funnier? So that's both of those are ticks. If it's not making it clearer and it's not making it funnier, let's not beat ourselves up. You know, it's simple as. Yeah.
0: And what advice would you give to editors who are starting out?
1: Um, I think there's obviously there's the creative advice, which is always to concentrate on the, you know, what will make the finished project better, what will tell the story best, what will make it funniest, I guess, in animation. That's really important. But also, um, you know, think about your time and how you're using your time that, you know, how can you, you know, is there another way to do something that's going to make it better? Can you know what what's the big win? You know to use to use the current mantra. What is the big win? You know, like are you getting sucked into a certain way of telling the story that won't make it better, and what could be that nugget that would you know open things up? I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I listen to everyone's opinion. I'm very interested in the whole dynamic between producer and directors, and very often you're you're kind of like the umpire in that that conversation and you're you, you know your, you know 15 love <laughs> juice and you can you but you can settle and you can settle a debate you know by saying well if you think that and you think that why don't we try it like this you know you're always there to sort of I would say don't get sucked into conversations always try and do something and show something that's what I'd say but also outside of that you know whatever you're doing Try and learn from it. Try and put yourself in learning positions. So if there's a, you know, a re, a re, in, in my world of animation, if there's a recording session, see if you can go along and help log. You know, you'll learn a lot about actors. You'll learn a lot about directing. You'll learn a lot about Pro Tools. You know, if you look over the shoulder of the person that's making doing the recording, position yourself somewhere where you're not in the way, but you can absorb what's going on. You know, if if you're on a show that's scoring ask them if they need anything taking to the stage so you can go and see what a scoring stage looks like if you're on a show that you know is shooting in a studio just try and when you've finished your work to ask if you can just pop along and see what's going on so you understand where the material is coming from you know always try and you know don't don't be pushy and get in the way and get people's nerves. But there are ways to sort of absorb all the things you need to know because you, you need to know how it all fits together. You know, try and go to the grade. Try and see how, you know, what it looks like when it's finished. If, if you can get it on a mix stage, all the better. You know, I remember going to the mix stage for the first time and thinking, you know, in an hour and a half, I learned more about mixing than I'd known in the five years leading up to that moment. I just saw how it worked you know with um who who was in charge and running the room and who was supplying what and what the dynamic was and you know what it sounded like (laughs) how it was all too loud (laughs) but yeah yeah just try and so yeah with it with your creative work try and think about the big picture and um just in your your absorbing of craft try and put yourself in a position to absorb as much as possible i think it's quite lovely at alban they have a strict lunch break which i'm a huge fan of doesn't always happen but i think it's very sweet that the editors all sit around and very often eat their lunch in the editing room and talk about films <laughs> but it's great you know it's really great you know people i love people the fact that they're at computer screens all day long editing but then they're the siren blows, it's lunchtime, and they just talk about films.
0: <laughs> anyway. And on the topic, what are your favourite films? Oh. Are there any I films mean, that stand out to you and go, I thought that was
1: Well, I mean I I'm a bit bit of a weirdo because I, I really love um old films. <laughs> I really you know, I really love uh the Palm Pressburger films, you know, A Matter of Life and Death, um and Black Narcissus uh you know, small back room Tales of Hoffman. I really love those films because they, and I suppose I, it's a bit of a reach, but I guess they were people who their stylized storytelling involves, you know, fantastical elements, but really strong emotional stories, and I think that's, I, I you know, I think I'm probably attaching. That as a, I just really like their films, so I'm trying to make that somehow relate to my body of work. You know, I mean, they also were really into special effects really early on, and they used to storyboard and everything, and and um, yeah, so I really like their films.
0: And the final question that I ask everyone: What motivates you to work?
1: Oh, uh, what motivates me to work? I um I think I'm. I think I'm. I love the creative process. I love helping people who I regard as being more creative than me. I love helping collaborating with them and 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 realizing their vision. Um, I think uh, I think I do have a lot of creativity in me, and I think it, I love you know expressing that through my collaboration with other people.
0: Simon Jones, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all the stories, your time, brilliant. your experience, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you want to see more from me, follow me at Jordan Ford underscore ei on Instagram or go to epicinsight.co.uk to see more from me and my business. Thank you very much. Until the next one.